Exploring heart rate variability, HRV, as a marker of resilience and behavioral flexibility. Researchers at harvard.edu have been investigating heart rate variability, HRV, as a possible indicator of resilience and behavioral flexibility. HRV measures the variation in time between each heartbeat, a function controlled by the autonomic nervous system, otherwise known as ANS, which regulates essential tasks such as heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, and digestion. We spoke with Salim Najjar, a leading HRV expert, entrepreneur, and owner of DrinkSound.com. Salim shared his experience monitoring HRV to help with self-regulation and healthier responses to stress. Listen to our conversation with Salim Najjar to learn more about his journey into health, wellness, and the benefits of HRV. Without further ado, Salim Najjar. How are you, Salim? Oh, thank you so much for that introduction. I am doing so, so well and feeling so grateful for the opportunity to have this open discussion with you on your platform. So thank you for seeking me out. You want to go onto Instagram and follow him at that HRV guy. It's phenomenal. I mean, he's done an amazing job with his Instagram and all the information that he puts out into the universe. So thank you. I appreciate you. How are you doing today? I am doing so, so well. It is a Thursday, a little overcast Thursday here in Venice, but just like I said, feeling very grateful for this opportunity. Venice, California, right? Venice, California. Yeah. Is that where you're originally from? No, it's been three years since I moved here from New York, which is where I'm originally okay. from. I grew up in upstate New York, Hudson. Well, I say upstate, upstate for anyone in the city. I grew up in Hudson Valley, about an hour and a half north of the city. And then I lived in the city for about eight years before moving out here three years ago. What a change. What a- How do you like it? Oh, man. I'm born and raised a New Yorker. So New York will always have a special place in my heart, but this feels it is home right now. And I think for where I'm at in life and in my pace of life, um, exactly where I need to be. So I really couldn't be happier here. Yeah. That's wonderful. So does your business reside in New York or is it in uh, Venice? Yeah. So the headquarters, we say is, you know, my apartment, as you can see behind, but also my co-founders and he lives in in Connecticut and there's no real office. We're just nationally in retail and online and stuff like that. So no real, I'd say like home base, although we did launch it in New York. So we say, you know, original yeah, headquarters is in New York. So sound, is it, it's, you said it's nationally. So is it, how many cities is it in? Yeah. I mean, we're in, in over 2000 retailers. So, so nationwide. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear a little bit about your work history. So let's get into it. So from what I've understood and researched on you, you received a BA in electrical engineering and computer systems. What drew you to that field? Yeah. So I'm my, my background Lebanese. I'm first generation Lebanese. So both my parents were born and raised in Lebanon and in our culture, they say you're either an engineer, a doctor or a lawyer, right? Is, is, yeah. is, is what they say. And, and my father was a PhD in chemical engineering. And so engineering was always something like I grew up around and with and uh, math and science always came easier to me in school. So I went down that path, but I'll, I'll never forget halfway through college when I was getting my engineering degree, I realized how much I love business. And mm-hmm. I, I called my mom and I was like, mom, I, I want to transfer majors to business. I don't want to be an engineer. She's like, Slim, 
you're halfway through, you spend all this time, energy, effort, like finish this degree, do whatever you want after you graduate, but trust me, this will be a good degree to have. And she was so right. Mothers are always right, as you know, because when I graduated in 2009, the economy tanked. It was the, mm-hmm. the real estate bubble burst and there was no jobs for, you know, business majors and stuff like that. But engineering, you know, there wasn't. I ended up working. <laughs> I got a job at a nuclear power plant doing mechanical engineering because it was the only there was very scarcity around all jobs, period. But that one had opened up in my local town or around where I grew up. And I ended up taking that job, even though I had signed a job before the economy tanked in California, which is where I always wanted to be in like a technical sales job that was like business and engineering, but then it got rescinded when the economy tanked. So Universal was is happening and working for you. And I'm grateful for that job because that's where I ended up meeting my co-founder. He was an engineer working at the nuclear power plant too. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So wait, is that true? You were doing power turbines, right? Yeah, I was the main turbine system engineer there. So I was responsible for the two massive 1.6 million horsepower turbines that powered most of New York City. What? The two thousand thirty-five cool. yeah. megawatt. Yeah, turbines. Yeah, quite quite crazy. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's a, I had a lot of press on it, which is really cool. I read a little bit about that. Yeah. Very cool. Unfortunately, it's shut down now um, because of anti-nuke. And that's a whole other topic we should not go down because it's I very know. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was responsible. I mean, that power plant was responsible for 40% of electricity to New York City, the largest city, arguably in the world, for yes. over four decades. And unfortunately, in the past couple of years has shut down, which is just, yeah, a mess. But I yeah. was responsible for supporting and maintaining it. Yeah. Got you. Okay. Wow. Well, then you worked for IBM, right? So was IBM before? IBM was before I was internships. Yeah. Okay. So that's internships. And then you worked for, it was at Indian Point Energy? Indian Point Nuclear Energy Center. That was the nuclear power plant. So, okay. To me, it sounds like, and I've seen this with a lot of engineers, there is a level of stress. How did you deal with that stress? Yeah. At that time, I kind of, I'm a very regimented, disciplined individual. And so I was, I would run 10 miles every other day. And the other day I would go to, to, to the gym. So, and did this calisthenic workout. So I basically took all of, you know, the stress and focused it on my wellness. It was actually also the beginning of my wellness journey was while I was working at the power plant. Cause when I graduated college, I think 40 plus pounds heavier than I am now and wasn't overweight, but it was from essentially alcohol and processed food. I was very inflamed. Like there's pictures yeah. of graduated college, um, which is very inflamed, unaware, not educated around, you know, wellness and health as most of us in this country, unfortunately are, because we only know what we see and what we're fed. And it was actually when I graduated college and when my grandma got breast cancer, that it was the first time that like, I questioned what was going on in the world um, as my father passed when I was seven from cancer and I never really oh. processed that. Um, yeah. And then when I graduated college and my grandma got breast cancer and she was like my second mom, she helped raise us with my mom. I was like, what is going on with the world? And um, that's when I started doing my own research. And I came across this incredible Dr. Tulio Simoncelli um, who talks, who's cured thousands and supported thousands of cancer patients with baking soda. 
sodium bicarbonate, a natural yeah. alkalizer, because he believes that cancer cannot thrive in an oxygen-rich alkaline environment. And most of us in uh, a common American diet are acidic due to the sugars and processed foods that we eat. And that's really when cancer can thrive. And so it was a very eye-opening experience for me to realize that, you know, we see what people want us to see. And there's so much more out there if you do research. So right. engineering analytical mind just went down rabbit holes and you know i came across hydrogen peroxide and iodine and all these other you know simple elements that you know you can't patent so there's no money to be made off them but they have just incredible benefits and and really just to get back to you know nature and, and ourselves and evolution and that's when i started experimenting with different diets and really went vegan for a couple of weeks, which was an elimination diet. And I felt great, but wasn't happy. And mm -hmm. vegetarian for like two months and similar felt good, but still wasn't happy. And I landed on pescatarian for about like four and a half years. I love yeah. my fish. I love my eggs and some dairy. And then it was maybe like almost 10 years ago, even, even longer now that I came across ketosis before I say our consumer package, good industry ruined keto in the word for it. And it kind of just clicked when I read about it, that if you cut out, you know, processed carbs and sugars, your body will start burning fat for energy, producing ketones. And so when I did it, it was like just a whole nother level up in terms of clarity and energy and focus. And just like a feeling that like I did, I felt like a new human. It was like an upgrade. And so when I first started, as I do everything, I kind of go to the extreme end. And yes. Yeah I, hear you. Out, yeah. I cut out all sugar, <laughs> um, especially in beverages. And so I would only drink water and unsweetened tea. And this was while I was at the power plant. My co-founder, Tommy was health conscious as well. And so we'd enjoy unsweetened tea together at work, yerba mate and stuff. And he was obsessed with bubbles and it was actually his idea. He, he had a soda stream, brewed up some mate, cooled it, put it in the soda stream and voila, the first sparkling tea was born and brought it in for me to try. And I had, at the time I was like, you know, taking an MBA, my MBA online, I was investing in real estate and trying to find like something I could be passionate about to go all in outside of engineering and to leave. And when he brought me this, it just like clicked wellness, health and like, and so, yeah, we, we went all in and, and here we are nine years later. Yeah. You know what I love is about your story is that it's a classic biohacker. You, you first, you realize you're like, okay, I've got inflammation. What is this inflammation? And then you mentioned that you started equating it to diet. You obviously from the tragedies and the traumas that you've experienced with your dad and your grandma, you know, you start to kind of go, okay, I don't. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to suffer like that. And then you start to experiment with diets, right? Everybody starts experimenting with diets and then it turns into, you know, like me, it was okay. Well, I obviously need to cut out a lot of sugar. I need to cut out whatever's making me inflamed. And at the time I'm assuming for you, there's not a lot of testing that was available to determine that now there's testing everywhere as a biohacker. You know, as a bioenhancer, we're, we're, we're starting to see a surge, which is why I wanted to talk to you about HRV and we'll get there, but the testing and all the experiments that we've had to do on ourselves, right? All the diets, it's an evolutional process to which you kind of do narrow down what's going to work best for you. So ketones, right? Getting into ketosis, you have found has probably been the best thing for your health. 
And we do all this for the physical aspect. And I do want to dive into the mental piece. Did you feel, I know you have been on a journey, but from all the work stress, obviously now we're learning that inflammation just doesn't have to do with what we intake and our environment, but it's how we're processing up here. I have to ask you from all those stress, stressful jobs and traumas, and then trying to figure out what's causing the inflammation in your body. And then you're doing the work to kind of eliminate all that toxicity. What, how was it as far as the mental health piece? Did you discover that, you know, the stress level, the cortisol levels were impacting the inflammation as well while you were working in these fields? Yeah, I would say early on, I did not realize the correlation and it's only through the the continued journey that you realize that it's directly affected. Right. And and actually, as we get into HRV, it it is everything. Um, So yeah, that came as I started quieting the mind more, because when we talk about extreme, you know, when I was going extreme in the, the ketosis, then around that time too, biohacking became a thing. Dave Asprey, Ben Greenfield, all these people started coming out And at that point, just through diet, I had realized how much more energy I could get. And I became obsessed with optimizing and increasing my energy and like being able to do more and be more and all the things. And so I went on the extreme end in biohacking. It happens. Yeah. This coincided with like, you know, when, when I quit the power plant and we went all in and sound in the first four or five years of sound, I was living in New York city. And just, I mean, you name any new toy or anything that came out, experimenting, trying, I was showing off that I was sleeping five hours a day and able to hack that through like other apps during the day to get rest and running 10 miles and like basically optimizing as much as I could. And when I'd be running, listening to audio books. So like always just constantly feeding the mind because at the time I thought that's what was best. And that's how I could, you know, be more productive and grow sound and do all the things And I didn't realize how much of a toll it was taking on my body and on my heart and on my stress, because even though I was doing all these things, I was still very stressed and and the body is always speaking to you. And if you don't listen, then things happen to force you to listen. And that's where injury, you know, there's an injury happens for you truly. And, And for me, it was an injury on my knee that kind of essentially from running so much and not resting and recovering, stopped me from doing the thing that brought me to most like peace, which was running and sweating that, that endorphin release from running. And so when that happened and I couldn't run anymore, I like, I needed to, for my own stress level, find something to allow me to sweat. And that's when I came across Bikram yoga. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was for me, my first time ever in my life that like I was forced because Bikram yoga, I don't know if you've ever tried it. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I haven't. Have you heard of it? Bikram? I've heard of it. I've heard of it, but yeah, I and haven't tried it. Heard about the documentary and Bikram and all the like, you know, there was a whole, it's a whole nother world in terms of some stuff he did, which yeah, is, is here, not neither here or there, but it, it's an incredible yoga series of 26 postures, the same postures that you perform twice and you essentially hold them. And it's in, it's a medicine. It's basically an internal stretching of all of your organs and everything. And I mean, when I first went to the class, I was like, am I in the right place? Because it was really, you know, 80% of the class was 50 plus. And it's crazy because you're in 90 minutes in a sauna, essentially. It's like over 50% humidity, over 105 degrees for 90 minutes. So you're essentially holding these 26 postures in extreme heat conditions and just forced to be 
right? And it, yeah. they say it's, it's an eyes open meditation because it's very challenging to survive the class and, and be thinking about things like work and your to-do list mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it's all mirrors. So you're essentially just like looking at yourself and forced to meditate. And it was my first um, glimpse into quieting the mind and my inward journey. And it was such a beautiful, beautiful like seed that was planted. Yeah. Did you struggle at first with that? Oh, I would. Oh, <laughs> but, but what, what allowed me to get through it was knowing that in these 90 minutes, I'm getting my sweat release. So like struggled during it, but the high after, and this is like the typical, anyone who always tries Bikram, it's like, you don't, go to Bikram for the actual class. You go for how you feel after and how you feel after is like, it's so euphoric. And so my extreme obsessive mind started craving that and it became my church. I literally every morning in New York City, I for about four and a half years, if I was in the city, I was every morning, seven days a week going to Bikram yoga for 90 minutes. And it was my way to just like ground and reset and, and start my day with a clear head. That's amazing. You're very disciplined. Yeah. yeah. Yes. A blessing, I, I, curse, a blessing and a curse. Right? Your greatest gift is also your biggest lesson, not a curse. I should say your greatest gift is also your biggest lesson. Yeah. You know, I can honestly, in my head, I can picture you then. And just the tidbit of times that I've gotten to know you, it's like light. It's like a different, a huge difference. I can imagine. For yourself, right? This it's had to have been a long journey, a very, you know, self-discovery process. So I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing this, to which I have to ask you. So you went from these high stressor jobs to then shifting industries completely to a nonprofit organization such as Foster Nation. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. And that Foster Nation came about through one of my dearest friends, Maggie, actually started it, co-founded it. And the whole reason I even got connected originally was to sponsor it as a beverage with sound. You know, they were they were hosting this event and were looking for a beverage sponsor. It was out in California and her boyfriend at the time was a mutual friend and said, oh, you know, Salim has a beverage company. Maybe he'll sponsor. We had no business being out in California, but I got on a phone with her. And when I heard about the the nonprofit and the mission, like, and it's one of those phone calls energetically, like it was just like instant, like one, her as a human, but two, what they were doing. And essentially Foster Nation is a, a nonprofit focused on empowering foster youth, specifically those that have been emancipated from the system. And emancipated means like once you turn 18, you're considered an adult and kicked out the system, which is insane because most 18 year olds that grow up in a stable family cannot be on their own, much less ones that have gone gone through a broke system and, you know, several foster families. So um, the statistics on the 18 to 22 year old former foster youth in terms of like death and incarceration and and just drug abuse, it's just, it's gut-wrenching. And so Mm -hmm. Foster Nation, it empowers them, it gives them a voice and, and really supports them in finding their way. And so she told me about this. I like, I was like, yeah, we'll absolutely sponsor the event. And I'd love to fly out. It was a mentorship event. And so I flew out, brought sound and just totally fell in love. And they threw an event every quarter. So I'd fly out every quarter to support it and just became very close with, with Maggie and the whole organization. And after about a year and a half of doing that, their dream was LA is not the only issue with foster youth. New York is a massive one and they wanted to franchise and start a chapter in New York, but never really had anybody to lead that charge. And that's when I I was living in New York, I was like, yeah, I want to do this. And so opened up the first chapter for Foster Nation in New York. Um, Wow. Yeah. It moved you that that's amazing. 
Yeah. Doing something like that is a whole nother entity and a whole nother beast to tackle. Again, I have to, you are very determined, tenacious and disciplined. And, but also too, you can see the heart, your heart centered, which Mm. I love, which is amazing. Okay. Let's dive into the biohacking piece. I want to hear, I know you've touched a smidge on inflammation that you dealt with, but give us a little bit more because obviously you've explored other biohacking methodologies. You're using instrumentations. We're going to talk a little bit about your shoulder issues that you had and what you tried to do to, but let's talk a little bit about what got you or led you into the biohacking world. Cause you're, you've, you've got some, you know, pull in that arena. So talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mentioned it a, a little earlier. It was really this, just, I have a very strong desire at the time to optimize and to, to have more energy because I felt the law of the universe energy out is energy. And so the more energy I could put out, the more I will receive And it's funny, as I reflect now, you know, the foundation of sound and why I started it, like why I wanted to get into it and for biohacking, you know, was really my core wound, which I've now, you know, started to unravel, which is just this innate nature of my mind and ego to want to nurture and protect and support because I was put into a role of a father and the man of the house at age seven and, you know, Lebanese culture, very patriarchal. And so like, you know, when I started town, it was like to financially be able to support my siblings, my mom, my family, everything, right? And and so I was doing whatever it took because of this strong desire of my mind, of my ego, to want to be able to support. It's like whatever is needed, and that's what led me to my discipline. So it's such a gift, and I've befriended this ego, right, of this strong desire, and it also it's a great lesson because there's a lot of attachment and stories around that. And that shouldn't be the thing that controls. So I just wanted to mention that, but that is what really led me to just like an insane extreme wanting to biohack and optimize. So, so that I can get back to what I felt was, you know, my purpose and and role at the time. And that's continued to evolve obviously, but yeah, it was, it was really to chase energy and to optimize and to be able to do the things that I felt I needed to do. Which is so interesting you said this because for a lot of, okay, you pull in culture and then you pull in the idea that you're male, right? Your father dies at seven, correct? And so you're now, are you the oldest in the family? Oldest of three, yeah. Oldest of three. So now you're forced in this role of making sure everybody's safe, you know, that you're helping, managing, taking care of. And that's typical what I've seen for men versus women that are thrown into that world. I do think that that's interesting because you've, you've, you've given me a little bit in that, just in that few sentence alone on how your brain was forced into that type of state of mind. So you can't afford to go down. You can't afford to, to, to be sick or to be hurt or to be wounded. So I see that in men, they just keep pushing forward versus you had to have something that came and hit you and said, you know, Salim, stop, stop doing that. Your world, this world hasn't put that pressure cooker that you're putting yourself in continued to evolve, correct? In your life. Was there a moment in your life where it was like, ah, like a breaking point? Yeah, there's been several. The one that kind of started the journey, like I mentioned, was the the knee giving out and like stopping. 
from doing like what I love to do, which was like running. It was truly my like, even though I wasn't escaping, my mind was still on. I'd listen to books and stuff, but it was just it. It was so part of my world running 10 miles like for years and years um, that I it just it became an identity for me. And when that left, it was it forced me to stop and like go and find Bikram, which was like the door that led to like a pause, you know, which was, yeah, was, was quite profound. Which is phenomenal that you had that access because there's men across the U.S. and in rural communities, like things like that, where they've gotten hurt and they're not they're not allowed to lay around and heal, right? And they don't have the accessibility to programs like what you just said, Bikram Yoga. Their mindset is so controlling and enabling to fully heal because they have to get back at it, right? They have to get, you know, get back on the saddle and and keep moving forward, but they're in massive pain, right? And they don't take the time to heal themselves, nor do they have access to, to things like you have. So I think, you know, the universe gave you the opportunity, right? And where you live and the accessibility to to share this with other men who are also dealing with injuries and things like that. But they're in their mind, they're like, I can't be broken. (laughs) And I see it all the time. Even in Montana, where I live, men get hurt all the time. They throw their backs out on horses. They are hunting, they're hunters and they cannot afford to heal, to, to lay low and heal and do the things that they need to do. So your messaging is really helpful for men. <laughs> and what happens when you don't afford to actually integrate what the lesson of the, the injury is, it repeats itself. It, it'll keep yes. repeating itself until you listen, because the body truly is always speaking to you. And if you don't listen, it'll keep hitting you over and over and over again. Right. Right. And then more pain happens and more suffering happens and you're living in a state of misery. So I'm so glad that you found something that helped you. And on top of that, you're sharing that. I've seen that message. This is another point I want to make on your Instagram on, you know, especially with your shoulder injury, it's like saying, Hey, I have an injury. Here's what I'm going to do to help my body heal or prepare for surgery. That is something that needs to be put out into the universe. So kudos to you for, for doing that work that it's not being done. So thank you. Okay. The field of health and sciences has gotten more and more advanced by the minute. We are seeing different methodologies and approaches to enhancing health and wellness, preventing disease and understanding genetics and our brain's capabilities through human enhancements, biohacking and transhumanism, which is kind of controversial. All very different approach approaches yet align with the same goal, which is to improve individual performance via technology. In what ways have you dabbled in each of these areas? Such a great question. <laughs> I love it. I, I, I'd say I've dabbled in all on the extreme side and I've now kind of equated it back. I talked to my clients a lot about this. I feel, you know, I was very guilty of, you know, extreme biohacking and I say, not integrating. And I think in anything you do, integration is equally as crucial as like intention going in it because what are you taking out of it and what are you learning from it and what are you bringing it into the world? And when I say, I feel like a majority of the biohacking community now, which again, I was very guilty of, doesn't integrate. You know, when I was extreme biohacking at first, I'd be giving myself all this energy to optimize, but then dumping it right back into the matrix and material and physical things rather than myself. And at the end of the day, 
the outer is a reflection of the inner, right? We live, I've, I've posted about it, we live in the matrix, we could go down this rabbit hole when we talk about HRV more, but truly, I think what's so amazing about biohacking is like, our bodies still think we're living in the jungle, right? We've evolved in the jungle. And if we were living in the jungle, we wouldn't need any of these technologies. We wouldn't need hyperbarics. We, we wouldn't need anything. We have everything innately inside of us, in our breath, in nature, right? But we choose to live these high-paced lifestyles with work and cities and all these other environmental, you know, sensories that are just like happening at all times and biohacking technologies, a way to bring us back to our innate self and to that homeostasis and to help give us the energy needed to get back to that grounded state. And so integrating when you use these technologies, I think is so important because there's like the spiritual community that thinks biohacking is like, you know, not the thing. And then the biohackers who think the spiritual community is woo woo. And truly, I believe, you know, in our day and age and the whole point of evolution, like nothing happens by mistake. Nature doesn't make mistakes. So this technology and all these things that are happening are happening for us to further our evolution. And it's a matter of how you're integrating that and remembering truly where we all come from and that we are all one. Yes. Okay. So I have two points to make from what you just said. So first and foremost, Hippocrates, I did a podcast episode on this, talked about way back in the day, you know, he's the godfather of medicine, right? The, the way to heal a person, if you are a healer, is mind, body, and soul. So it's the trifecta of healing. Now, what I've noticed in over the last several years and with my health journey was that it's one or the other or the other, right? And so what I've seen, and I was the opposite. So I didn't get into biohacking till just, you know, a few years ago. I was more into the westernized approach for when I was sick. And then it shifted into westernized. Then you can only do, you know, functional medicine or homeopathy. And then it was get rid of all that. And let's just do mind control, mind hacking. Okay. So I came from the mind hacking brain retrainer communities, neuroplasticity to which there's such a massive, I always talk about how there's a culture here. That's a little toxic because the minute you say, okay, I need to go do something to help heal my body. Oh no, no, no. It's mind power. The mind is in control. It's trauma. It's how you're believing you're perceiving pain, which to some degree, absolutely. But the second you say, well, I'm going to go do a biohacking modality. Oh God. You know, it's like you're, you're going against the grain, but then I've also seen the same to be what you just mentioned is in the biohacking community. There wasn't a lot of focus on the mind component and the soul connection. So thank you for pointing that out. Those are two things that I've become aware of. And I absolutely talk all the time about tandem work, mind and body, mind and body. Don't forget the two. And then also connect to your soul, you know, mm -hmm. and I think that's super important. So thank you for that. Okay. I want to talk about the lack of diagnostic assessments in the biohacking community and with human enhancers. So take, for example, I know you've done stem cell therapy, right? I have not. No, I well, I've done bone marrow concentrate okay. on surgery, which is your own stem cell. Right. Therapy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've okay. My own, I've gotten my own stem cells injected in me while I was cut open and incision. Yeah. Yeah. So adipose tissue, right? You'd use adipose tissue or no, was it bone marrow? 
bone marrow concentrate. Yeah, no, no, no. Oh, got you. Okay. So I was grateful enough. My orthopedic surgeon also is a regenerative doctor. I yes. found amazing in LA. So while I was under and while he was operating and doing my ladder J surgery, he took two massive needles in my, in my uh, hip yes. bone. Yep. And pulled out the bone marrow concentrate and put it right in the open incision where the, the titanium screws were and everything. So. Wow. Wow. Yes. Well, I did stem cell therapy back in 2017. And I will tell you when I went and did it, it was around $30,000. It was kind of a newer, newer type approach to what I was dealing with. One of the things that I was discouraged by, and I want to get your thoughts on this is, okay, you go and spend 30 grand on stem cell therapy. I did adipose tissue mesochymal cells. And then it was put back into my body, recirculated into my, into my bloodstream. But when I walked away from it, it was, well, good luck. You have up to eight months to see if it worked. Now, had, again, this is, was in 2017, which was not that long ago. I haven't seen any changes as far as tracking whether or not the stem cells are doing what they need to do. There's actually no diagnostic testing. So I know a lot of what we do to hack or enhance, or let's say red light therapy, there's no actual, okay, I sit underneath the red light for 20 minutes. Did it do anything? It's kind of like a lion wait <laughs> in the diagnostic uh, community. There's nothing really out there. How important is testing for you regarding your attempts or efforts towards healing or enhancing? Yeah, it's a great question. And I guess I, I preface it. Another thing that I, I, I tell my clients in every you know, my, my, my friends, I believe we really live in the matrix. Right. And so by that, yes. I mean, Dr. Joe Dispenza, one of my favorite authors, incredible, the placebo effect, like everything really is placebo, truly, if you believe we live in the matrix and we create this reality. So mm -hmm. like, I know my mind, I love, I've become, I've become like very friendly with my, that's the hardest journey. Like the most important conversation is your internal dialogue. And, you know, our minds, our egos are formed at such a young age while our brain's oscillating in alpha between usually one and seven, the formative years. And that's when your ego is created. And so it is a part of you. It's a beautiful part of you. And my mind obsesses over, you know, engineering analytical details, like, you know, like that. And so I believe that, you know, I wear this necklace and it has a frequency and I go sit in my hyperbaric and I do these things. I, but my mind believes that it works. And so it creates all the chemicals and everything needed for it to work. Right. And so I guess to answer your question in terms of testing, like that's how I fell in love and maybe it's a great segue to HRV because, you know, I had an aura ring, but I wasn't like the sleep score that I would see would be like, ah, the readiness score. Ah. The one metric that has always correlated most with how I feel, not like what I do, how I feel energetically has been HRV. And that's what like really, as I've been on my, you know, journey with HRV over the last five, six years has been hands down the only thing I really care about. And I say that, and with a grain of salt, knowing that it's also just a number and it's placebo as well. But, but to me, it's been the most important metric. Agreed. And we're going to get into that, but I do want to ask you culturally, do you think we're relying on testing? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I agree with you on that. And then also too, what I've seen, I have to say this, I worked for Abbott Laboratories out of Chicago. I worked in diagnostics. I was all about lab testing. You know, you've got stat testing, you've got, you know, assay testing, hematology testing, all of it. There is so much money to be made in that arena. And there's, I believe there's been a cultural messing as to 
a person really, like you said, doesn't tap into that innate, intuitive, Did I, does this work? Yes, it worked. I have faith. I believe in this. I'm seeing now, and the further away I've gotten from Abbott, Abbott and the work that I did, people are so reliant. They have to have proof. proof. They can't trust that their body's got an ability to heal. That's like, no, no, I need to see a measurement for that. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel that majority see blood work as not a snapshot in time, but rather a finite, a finite measurement of whether or not they're able to heal or not? Do you see blood? Work? Do you see blood work? So for a person that gets a, their blood done or their testing, do they think, oh gosh, you know, I, I'm unhealthy or because I know for myself, I learned that blood work is really just a snapshot in time. It can change within 30 seconds, Oh, totally. but, but the messaging in blood, you know, the work that all these pharmaceuticals have put out there and companies that are selling lab testing and everything else. And even the doctors, it, the messaging is wrong to me, but I want to hear your thoughts because what it's doing is it's, it's creating a belief that our bodies are incapable or capable of healing based on testing. <laughs> oh, no, I totally understand now. And sorry and for I, the confusion. I wanted to make sure you understand. I'm oh, sorry. I'm giving you a little backstory on that. It makes total sense. And, and I think blood work or any of these tests, they should be used as a language to tell you like, Hey, this is happening. What can you do to support this? You know, it's 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 your body communicating with you, similar to what HRV is. It's really just a tool to tell you and to support you along your journey. It is not the answer. And to your point, it's just a snapshot in that moment in time. And we have the ability to create any reality we want in any moment in time. So you got to be careful the limiting beliefs that you put to yourself when you see these things and what's told. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. So then my second question for you is, do you believe in disease diagnoses? Disease diagnoses. <laughs> Meaning like, oh, you're labeled. Like, for example, I was told that I quite possibly had multiple sclerosis. Okay. I def I absolutely rejected that. Yep. idea. Yep. I went through extensive testing and realized later that my body was massively toxic, yep. massively toxic. So if I would have taken on that label, who knows where I would be at today? Totally. So what's your thoughts about labeling people oh, 100%. 100%. with disease? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I agree anymore. And that just yeah. goes back to like the reality we perceive, like we really right. create our own reality. So for sure. Yes. Thank you. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Okay. So let's get into HRV. So we know in the biohacking world, we have some forms of diagnostic testing available, such as home kits for mineral deficiencies, spit testing for candida. So you have, I don't know if you've ever seen where the people spit in the glass, okay. In the water, and then they let it sit overnight and they tell whether or not you have candida, the tilt testing for POTS, um, iodine testing to see whether or not your thyroid, your endocrine system is working efficiently. And then of course the tried and true, which, you know, a lot of people are learning about my muscle testing, which is, I do muscle testing on myself in regards to stored energy or blocks. And now we have heart rate variability measurements, which in the biohacking world, again, you are that HRV guy because it's in your Instagram handle. So when did you first learn about HRV? 
Yeah, it was during my inward journey after, you know, I hurt myself, I started and like I, I found more stillness doing Bikram. And it was a series of books, actually. And the book that I first vividly remember reading about it was actually like in the early part of Dr. Joe Dispenza's Becoming Supernatural. Okay. Um, he talks about heart rate variability. And when I when I saw it and when I understood what it's actually measuring, right, and what that measurement is indicating to you. So it's it's the variance between each of your heartbeats, right, which indicates how your heart is managing its perceived changing environment, right? So essentially, your relationship to your perceived stress and the health of your autonomic nervous system, which governs 90% of your voluntary and involuntary functions, right? And I knew just from my biohacking and like, you know, engineering analytical mind that on a cellular level, we all age, die, get disease from stress. When you're, when you're in a stressful state, you're in a sympathetic adrenaline cortisol state for survival, which constricts oxygen flow to your blood so that it can go to extremities and you can run from a saber tooth tiger, right? And being in this state for extended periods of time causes disease on a cellular level. And so when I realized that, okay, well, this, this measurement is telling you your relationship to stress. And at the end of the day, stress is the most important relationship. Like this is the only thing that I, that I should be looking at that I should care about. And so my crazy extremeness went all in on just understanding this measurement, understanding the levers and the different tools you can pull to support it. And when, when I started, my HRV baseline was around like 30, 30, 30, 35, right? Which yeah. I I share numbers. And, and when I first like launched my personal brand, I got so many DMs, people were worried that they were dying and all this stuff because they look at their number. The thing about HRV, you cannot compare your number to anybody else's. It is so uniquely individual and it fluctuates so, so much. I mean, you have 40 to 60 different HRVs every minute, right? Because it's a variance between each heartbeat and your heart beats on average 40 to 60 times per minute. And so it's crucial to not compare yours to anyone else's and to simply understand what yours is, where your baseline is, and how your body's reacting to the perceived stresses that you're giving and want to consistently over time, hopefully see it go up and work to it to go up. But it's really... I think one of my favorite ways to describe it, it's a language in which our heart is speaking and communicating to us how it feels in any given moment, right? And so our job is to listen to what it's saying and implement what's needed, whether it's a recovery or you can push it a little more or maintain. And, and some other cool ways to define it is, you know, it's it's it shows your body's agility to go from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic state. And my favorite in terms of like bridging spirituality and biohacking is it's a measure of your consciousness, of your agency, of your energetic aura field, because, you know, we're electric beings and we have an aura field around us. And that aura field is a reflection of your internal state. And HRV is a measure of your internal state. Absolutely. You did, that was amazing the way you explained that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Because I've had a lot of people ask me, what is HRV? They're thinking it's just your, your pulse, your heart rate. And I'm like, no, it's way more in depth than that. There's a ton of studies now on PubMed on HRV, which I was a little blown away by. But what I want to say is, I, I do want to say this. So you, you mentioned that your score initially starting out was at 30. Mine yeah. was like at a 42. Yeah. And, you know, 
the, the person coming from the diagnostic world, I am also very methodic. I'm all about measurements. My, my output where, where am I as it, as far as where does it measure up? Obviously some beliefs that I need to work on, but when you had that score and I'm assuming it was probably in the red, red zone, right? I don't know how you you did your first, how did you measure your first one? Of aura ring. Your aura ring. Okay. So that's yeah. the nighttime. There's no zones. And yeah, it's so the Aura Ring, the Whoop, and the Apple Watch, although Aura just launched a new feature, but historically it's been your average HRV at night. So it basically looks at, because again, it's 40 to 60 different, it fluctuates that many times in a minute. So it looks at your average HRV at night, which I say is indicative of the health of your nervous system from what you did the day before, right? Whatever stressors you put, because it's the one, it's a good baseline. Like if you look at your HRV during the day, it is going to fluctuate like crazy from if you're working out, if you're stressed, like so many times. So to understand what a baseline is, you need to have like be in the same exact environment to see where you're at. And when you're sleeping, that's the one time that you are in the same, usually environment. And, and so it's a great reflection of what you've done to your nervous system the day before. So does it break it out across a graph and then it gives you an average? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I I see so where you don't have an aura ring. Do I don't because my it's, there's two camps on HRV. I don't know if you know this, there's the daytime camp and the nighttime camp. Yep. And it's really fascinating. So listening to you versus Dr. Andy, whom I, you know, I, Oh, okay. Got you. That's what the aura shows. So that's, it's fluctuating all night. And then you see the average. Okay. Yeah. So your average is 106? That night. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Well, so I, you know, after four years, I got my baseline to be, I mean, this is, it's low for me now. If my oh. baseline was before surgery, 140 to 180. And I, and I peaked at an average, my highest <laughs> was 245 an average at night. And that was a day after uh, a plant medicine ayahuasca ceremony, which, you know, all that stuff very much supports getting more in here and out of here. But that's, that's my, the beauty of HRV is I believe there's no range, right? There's, there's, we can't say a range because one, we're all so different, but two, because there's, I don't believe there's a ceiling like, yes, technically it would be a 3000 millisecond gap between your heart, a three second gap. It's going to be very tough, but you can get, I believe, I think as high as 300, maybe even 400 milliseconds. Yes. And all that's doing, I think is we we're ascending. We become lighter and lighter. And I have a whole, we could go down a deep rabbit hole in theory that, but it's truly, you, you know, my, my breathwork mentor guru, when I explained to him what HRV was, he like chuckled and laughed. And he said, oh yeah, the Buddha was talking about this long before you were. And the Buddha used to say the quickest way to enlightenment or to get to the other side or to thin the veil is to widen the gaps between your heart. Yes. Essentially pause, just to slow yes. down, right? And that's yes. what HRV is measuring really, your ability to just be in the present moment. How much are you not only in the present moment, but fully accepting of it and happy with it, right? It's, it's really a happiness metric, which at the end of the day, we know that's what leads to longer life, being happy with where you're at. And when we go to, you were mentioning the testing and all these things and these limiting beliefs, like, you know, I look at, you know, old women in Italy who live to hundred plus and smoke cigarettes every day. We label cigarettes as bad. Yes. Physiologically they have all these chemicals. They are bad and everything is placebo and it's just energy. And so 
these women so strongly believe that the cigarette is good for them and makes them happy that it doesn't have that effect. Now, you can't, that doesn't mean that you can go and have a cigarette because our mind has so much programming around what that is. But truly, that's the power of the mind and understanding how much of a matrix we really live in. Yes. Agreed with you on all of that. My other thought with HRV though, I do have to say this when I first got my measurement and I did the daytime, so it's the hand cradle. There's also the chest strap. And what's fascinating about that is I think, you know, I've been tracking it about, I do it about every three months is when I have my HRV. For me, I started out at 40, so 42. And I thought, what? Which is a great score, by the way. I didn't think it was, I was in the left quadrant. So I was very, but I also, to be honest with you, I had absolutely symptoms that aligned with that. It made sense to me as I began to work further, doing some mind hacking work, biohacking work, you know, doing amping up how I was stopping throughout the day. I do a lot of uh, brain stops and breath work throughout the day because I, I knew, I knew physically, internally, I was dealing with, I I was on a, you know, I was just running on this hamster hamster wheel at 42. It, it didn't scare me. I just knew I had room for improvement. Mm -hmm. I had room for being able to work on adaptability, you know, doing some exposure work, telling myself it's okay. You know, you, you made it through that. You know, I, I dealt with a lot of different things, a lot of anxiety around different situations that I had in the past and my body perceived everything as a threat. So at that time, when I got my HRV score, I was like, okay, I am still, I still have work that I need to do. Uh And my internal stress dialogue is still there. It's still heightened. Even though I had done two years prior of really focused work on my perception of stress and anxiety, I knew I still had work to do. I knew, I knew like, you know, I, maybe there's some biohacking methods that I'm not, I need to pursue. And I did, and I got, you know, over a period of around six months. Now mine is not as high as yours, <laughs> but I'm proud of the shift. So I went from 42 up to around now I'm about 87. So I, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be done for doctors that are doing HRV testing, because it's still a complex thing. There's still a lot of research that's happening around it. And I think we're going to be mind blown on what HRV can do for all of us and how we should be tracking it. It should be a part of a routine workup. But, you know, what was said to me was just this room for improvement. You can improve your HRV score. Ideally, the doctor had mentioned over a 120 is, you know, like kind of like athletic and gurus that do a lot of meditation. That's kind of where, you know, you, that's the pinnacle. You want to be above 120, which you are, (laughs) but he did say it fluctuates. So let's say you have a period of stress, you know, or you go on vacation and for a lot of people, vacation is a stressor. It's not an, you know, it takes a little time for people to adjust to vacation. The, the, The act of going on vacation is stressful. So, you know, you can dip, And then once you get on vacation and you do the work to calm yourself and, you know, relax and do all things, it can go back up. So I would love, go ahead. No, I just, what I'm going to say is, you know, HRV measurement for me was, it really gave me some validation to where I was and where I'm at now. 
Mm. And I'm going to say that because I was very sick. I was very stressed. I wouldn't leave my house. I was a recluse. I was dealing with anxiety, depression. I didn't want to be on medication. So I was doing everything that I could to avoid getting on those kind of things. I, I, I wanted to be very natural and then, but I had to acquire tools to be able to deal with stuff better. I had to, you know, I had to learn how to tap. I had to learn how to do somatic work, which I know you teach, which is wonderful. And, but I, for me, I needed to know, okay, not only intuitively, I know it's working, but I, it was, it was a great way of showing, oh yeah, all the work you're putting into yourself, it is paying off. Do you feel that way with HRV? Oh, absolutely. And that's why it's my favorite. It's it's the one thing that always correlates with how I feel, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I want to have so much to say. One, thank you for sharing all that. I just want to say some things for the audience before people get scared. I guess, do you know what index you were measuring HRV with those scores? Because there's several different indexes. And I just, from a science point, like, I mean, the Aura and the Whoop measure an RMSSD, whereas the Apple Watch measures something differently. So there'll be higher scores on an Apple Watch than an Aura and a Whoop. I have no idea what you're measuring, but just be aware that it could be like your 46 could be like an 80 in an Aura ring or so. So there's there's so much that we don't know or that that isn't out there. So that's another reason why you shouldn't compare one score to another. Because I mean, I have clients, I know plenty of people that are at like 19 or even like, you know, in, in the single digits at time. And that doesn't mean they're dead. It just means that they have a nervous system that's very much high intense. And to your point, it's just something that you work on. And it fluctuates. Like when I had my surgery, I woke up and my HRV was eight. Okay. I went gotcha. from my baseline down to an eight, but that's because I had anesthesia, a nerve blocker. I was cut open. My nervous system was totally, totally shocked. And over the past now, it's been seven and a half weeks. I've gotten it back up to not fully where it was, but getting there and getting there over time. And it's been great to watch it progress as, you know, different milestones have been hit. So it's really, I think it's just, so, I, I, as humans, we have this innate, like we want to compare and like, you're like, yeah, it's not as high as yours. Is what, and, and, right. and the most important thing with HRV is really not to do that. And it's just, it's, it's your own body communicating with you where it's at and to use it, how you are using it, which is like, you see the improvement, you're listening, use it as, oh, my body is thanking me because you have a higher score because you're actually doing what your body wants it to do. And I mean, I have a theory. Yeah. Well, actually we'll get into it a little later. We'll get into it. No, I, no, I want to hear your theory because what's interesting is again, the two different camps. And then what I'm learning, it's so complex. It's, it's kind of complex. All right. How they're measuring the wavelengths and, and the type of methodologies that are out there, like you had just mentioned. So there is differences. It's different methods. And I, again, I love how you're reiterating that don't compare, but for me, I'm using it as a metric of improvement. Yep. So I appreciate you reiterating that. The other, the other thing that I, I interviewed Dr. June, he's a, a quantum health practitioner, which is another conversation, another field to chat about. Um, and it's something that a lot of biohackers are tapping into. So the, the quantum entanglement piece, quantum physics in relation to your health, which would be amazing for you because the way your brain works, right? But I also wonder too, how frequencies and how the your personal frequency. So for me, I don't know where I fall as far as frequencies, but I've never been measured for that. But the average human falls between, I think, nine and 13 hertz. And so, you know, I often question is HRV impacted by 
if you're, let's say you're on the more higher end and your environment is overstimulating you and you're already on that higher end for frequency wise, is that something that HRV you need to take into consideration when you do get your HRV measurement done? Because you are vibrating at a higher frequency and maybe that is impacting the the method (laughs) of measurement. Every single thing you do affects HRV. So it's not just what you eat or how you exercise. It's what you watch, what you listen to. Yes. Your environment that you're in, not just like your home, but like the country, the toxic, every single thing you do impacts HRV, which is why it fluctuates so much and why you should never compare yours to anyone else's. And really, again, just use it as a tool to listen to what your body is liking and where it feels safe, because it's a measure of how safe your heart feels in its environment. And so it's about chasing that like continued improvement to get your heart to feel safer and safer. And one thing I want to tie back to the whole like, you know, placebo and how much like all these biohacking and tools that like I'm grateful to have exposure to, to support my highest maintained HRV ever, right, was on a three-week period when I was traveling in Mexico and did not have a single biohack, right? It's because I was literally in the moment enjoying my life so, so much that it gave me the highest HRV. No no hyperbaric, no cold plunge, no just truly being, right? Mm. So that just goes back to show that you, all these things are great tools to support, but they should not be mistaken for what we have innately and the ability to just be in the present moment, which is all really HRV is reflecting. Like how much are you in the moment and enjoying the moment? Yes, I love that, which that's why I was going to ask you because you are the HRV guy, how do you get it up there? But now I know the trick is to be, and for most people, like I said, before we got on the call, you kind of, you have to learn what that feels like. What do you, what do you recommend? What are some of the things you recommend to do? I want want to be very cautious. It's not just about being because there's the whole, like the Buddhist philosophy of, you know, we, everything is, you know, all suffering is, is self-created and we should just be, go meditate. And that's one philosophy. And then there's the, you know, more of the Tibetan Bhagavad Gita philosophy, which I love, which is like, you know, our souls came into this world to do action. You should not be attached to the fruits of your action, right? No attachment to any expectations, but we're here to do to further evolution, right? And how you increase your HRV is actually put yourself in perceived stressful situations, right? And I want to shift this like, you know, perception of stress because stress is not a bad thing. It's all perceived, right? Put yourself in a perceived stressful situation, like a cold plunge. Our body's like, oh my God, it's cold. This isn't comfortable. Turn on your agency, breathe through it, go from that sympathetic state to the parasympathetic state, train your heart to know it's okay. And now you've increased that malleability of your heart, therefore increasing its capability to handle that stress the next time it happens and increasing your HRV. So it's not just about being, it's about also pushing yourself in those limits. And why I feel like my HRV is so high is because I put myself in, some argue, the most challenging business beverage and all the stresses that come with that. And I knowingly in the middle of the day would go and reset and do these different technologies and tools to calm my body down and they get right back into a call or an investor meeting or this and that. Um, And so it's really fluctuating and going from that high sympathetic to that parasympathetic state is so crucial. And so 
the, the first two things I look at with my clients and I say to answer your question on how you improve your HRV, number one is sleep. The most crucial thing, it's the one thing evolution has not gotten rid of for any species on the planet, and there's a reason for it. And it's that's when you're in your deepest parasympathetic state. Your brainwave is oscillating in delta between 0.5 and 4 hertz, and that's when it's all resetting. And that's crucial for HRV, right? So if your sleep isn't good, your HRV isn't going to be good, period, end of story. There's, there's no if, ands, or buts about that. The second most important tip that I give is fluctuating and dipping from a sympathetic to a parasympathetic state. And we could rewind this back like I do with everything to evolution, right? We evolved and it happened for us, creating, nature created this sympathetic state because survival. We were living in the jungle. If a saber-toothed tiger came, we needed to quickly, regardless if it was the middle of the night or the afternoon, turn on and run so that we can survive, right? And that's why it constricts the oxygen to the internal organs and also all your extremities so that you can run for that half hour, hour, two hours at tops, right? And then you drop back into a parasympathetic calm state. However, this industrial and agricultural revolution in this fast-paced life we live, now we wake up from a deep parasympathetic state of sleep, right? We look at our phones and instantly we are in this mind-made stressful state. And 99% of the world does not shut off until they go grab their drink or glass of wine at night or go back to sleep. So now you are in this high beta adrenaline cortisol state for 8, 10, 12 hours causing this constriction of oxygen to your blood all day, what do you expect is going to happen? You're going to see the disease and the illness and all the stresses. And so to take an afternoon nap or pause or break, right? They say that power nap in the afternoon, for not only for your circadian rhythm, but to go from this fluctuation of sympathetic to parasympathetic, absolutely crucial for HRV optimization. Thousand percent. So two of the things I noticed for myself, I know people have asked me, what did you do to help yourself heal? I mean, I was very sick, miserable, caught up in disease and disorder and all these things, right? Number one was overcome beliefs, love my inner child. But the biggest thing was exposure work like exposure work, exposure work, exposure work. Sleep was crucial for me. Absolutely crucial. And I never learned the art of rest. I grew up in a family that's go, 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 go all work. No play makes Julia dull girl. Right. But like, I, I really thought I had to keep going and, you know, you have to work hard and all those things and never stop. But what a friend of mine gave me was a book called The Art of Rest, and it changed my life. I realized that I can give myself permission to stop. I am allowed a nap. <laughs> and a nap does more for me than a night, a full night's sleep. Mm -hmm. I 20-minute nap blows my mind. So everything you said, yay. Thank you. I appreciate that. And whoever's listening to this interview, to this chat. You're going to take so much away from Salim. And I really do believe if you're not following him, you're missing out. He put some amazing content out. That's why I loved, I loved him when I first saw him on Instagram and all the things he just is on repeat. You're on repeat. This is what you say all the time on Instagram. And it's absolutely the truth. So thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Let's move into your shoulder, shoulder surgery. And I want to hear a little bit, because I know for, for people out there that you know, they have something that they're 
going to have to do work on, or maybe they, they've been suggested, okay, you need to go have surgery on this, on your knee, your shoulder, your hip, whatever. I want to hear a little bit about what you've done to help yourself before the ultimate decision was made for you to have surgery. Yeah. So share Uh, a little bit on that. Totally. I, I really, you know, there's such a beautiful place for Western medicine and I believe like you believe the body can heal itself. And so when my injury happened, I anteriorly dislocated my right shoulder. I I was like, okay, I'm going to heal this myself. Right. And it was my coach that actually totally like shifted my perspective on the injury. I, I, prior to the injury, it was my birthday. And I had asked, you know, to step into less doing more being that was my ask in front of friends community. And I got gifted from my friends, this beautiful super 73 e-bike. And I took it for its first spin when injury happened. So with the gift that I got asked, right. And so I woke up with an HRV of, I think, 42 after I dislocated and they had to, you know, I was at the yard, I had to dislocate to relocate. So obviously, you know, a, a big fall on HRV because I was in pain, I was stressed, I was frustrated, all the things. I'll never forget, I got on a call with my coach that day and explained what happened. And he laughed and he was like, yeah, well, you know, you got what you asked for, because if you were to break down the body spiritually, the arms represent the doing, the torso represents the being, the shoulder connects the doing to the being. Literally, I got gifted from my body because it didn't think I was going to do it fast enough. So it exponentially brought me into more being, less doing. And the second I realized that and I laughed, my whole relationship with this injury changed. And I woke up the next day, still in a lot of pain, all the things, but I had an HRV of 95. I doubled my HRV just from that simple mental shift in paradigm of realizing that this happened for me, not to me. It happened for me. And so then I just spent basically six weeks doing all my modalities, trying to heal my shoulder and got it to a point where I was in no pain and I had mobility, but I couldn't get it above my shoulder and I couldn't reach without my shoulder spasming. And at the end of the day, it's because it's, it was a mechanical issue and I was missing 30% of my glenoid, my shoulder socket. So no place for that ball, that shoulder ball to sit on the tee. And this is where Western medicine is so amazing because instead of being handicapped the rest of my life, I have the ability and a surgeon has the ability to go and operate. And they essentially took, they had to slice off a piece of my coracoid process on the scapula and with two titanium screws, reattach it to rebuild that glenoid surface area, right? So, so grateful. And it was such a lesson and the universe gives you what you need. Like I, again, extreme and was like, no, no Western medicine, no this, you know, not needed. And it humbled me because it actually was needed so that I wouldn't be handicapped the rest of my life. And, and so then knowing I was going to have surgery, I took all my Eastern philosophies and practice to just get my body in the best possible position to receive surgery, which included, you know, hyperbaric, which included cold, hot therapies, which included diet, so crucial diet, which included a hydrocolonic before the surgery to clear out my entire system because the body is so miraculous and healing itself if it's allowed to, and all the energy and blood is flowing to it. And, you know, food is noise for the body. The body needs to break it down and turn it into energy. And especially when it's crappy food and sugars, it's even more noise, right? And our largest brain is really our gut. That's like, that's the actual brain. And so if that is clear, it the body can then focus more on healing and recovery. And more importantly, actually was my hydrocolonic three days after the surgery, because 
When you go into surgery, you are poisoned with anesthesia. It's, it's pure poison. For, it's needed poison because the pain, I, I asked the surgeon if I needed the nerve blocker and he laughed and he was so right. I needed the nerve blocker and I'm glad I got it. But like, it's a needed poison. However, that poison stays in your body and takes time. And so your body is not only then working to heal the shoulder and the injury, but it's also dealing with this poison in your body. And so I had, I got a hydrocolonic three days after to flush out that poison. And it was the most intense colonic I've ever had in my life. And like literally Monica, who's just this angel, motherly hydrocolonic, she, 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 she's like, Asleen, the evil and the poison that was coming out from the anesthesia, which we knew. So that was a massive help post-surgery and then hot, cold therapy, all the gadgets, the eating. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole long list of things that go into it. Yeah. Do you think it shortened the, the healing process and shortened the um, recovery process for you? Oh yeah. I mean, I am not even eight weeks out of surgery. I just saw my post, my surgeon yesterday, mind blown because normally four months before you could get to this point where I'm at now, where I'm like hanging from a bar after a very intense surgery with two titanium screws and, and cut yeah. open. So it absolutely supported the process. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Cause yeah. you don't normally hear that. And I think again, it's prepare, preparation prior to having some major health modality or surgery or whatever. And what I love, which you just gave me some food for thought is the afterwards of getting rid of that poison while you're under. That's so important. And I really didn't think about that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Good job on that. That's wonderful. I'm glad. Okay. We're going to shift to the work that you do. And we're going to talk a little bit about sound. So we know that you do some coaching work. Talk to us a little bit about what you do for coaching work. Yeah, that kind of blossomed just organically because clearly I have a passion for it in health and wellness. And, and with my dearest friends and community here in California, I started sharing and supporting and improving all of their HRVs. They say it's like the Salim effect. Yes, uh, and, I and love so, that. The Salim uh, effect. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, and so it was actually my best friend, Allie, who was like really pushing me to start like sharing this more. And I never really, yeah, I just, I, because of my own internal, you know, insecurities, like don't like spotlight, didn't like, you know, didn't, didn't really think I, I should have a voice or wanted a voice, um, you know, on a platform. And she very much has like supported me and pushing me to do that. But if I did it, I wanted to do it right, which meant a good agency and that costs money. And she was like, oh, you should just coach people on this. I mean, this is insane. You, you, so many people would do this in a heartbeat. And so I thought about it. And then of course the universe, the next day I had a meeting with, with someone and I was explaining to them this thought and they're like, oh my God, can you coach me? And then all of a sudden I started coaching people on what I call HRV optimization, which is really just, you know, knowing we have this metric that can improve, you know, I think it's the most important metric for longevity, for health, for happiness. And so really working on improving that. And it's, it's right now, it looks like, like, you know, entrepreneurs, some high performance people who like, I was very much in and, and had a very, I'd say type A personality and want to optimize and just go, go, go. And, and working with them to, to show them that like, Actually, if you can slow down and pause and give your body this rest, you can be that much more productive and, and be sustainably productive, which is a word that isn't talked about because most people go and they exit and they're burnt out and they're not happy and they, they, they did the thing and they sold the thing and they're on their second and third mountain and they're still 
chasing something, right? Destination happiness is, you know, so, so big in this culture. And, and it's really about, you know, realizing that it, it's right in front of you at all times and appreciating that. And HRV is, is, is a metric that shows that. So it's a cool way for me, I like to say, to plant the seed of consciousness in some of the most impactful people, because these people like me, strong desires, like, you know, entrepreneurs and, and, you know, high performers, you have the strongest desire and desire is so important. If you go back to the Tibetan philosophy and Bhagavad Gita, like the stronger the desire, the stronger the impact in the world, right? Just the method, it's a question of where is that desire and energy being steered towards? Is it being steered towards, you know, the matrix and corporate and money and physical things, or is it being steered towards, you know, a purpose? And so HRV helps align you and ensuring that you're, you know, listening to your soul. Cause that's HRV. That was the philosophy thing I was, I was, I was, you know, talking about, or was going to get into it's, it's truly, you know, I believe how much are you listening to your soul and, and it's in its purpose and aligned with it. Um, and there's a term I love, I call, you know, and I'm getting them now truth bumps. I say truth bumps, you know, when you get goosebumps, but it's not because you're scared. I've always called them truth bumps. And actually a dear friend, Dr. Dr. Drew, who's a, the incredible neurofeedback head at like the forefront of neurofeedback with 40 years of Zen. When I explained this to him, he laughed and he said, no, Celine, that's actually, it's called frisson. When you get those like things, there's a technical term, it's frisson. And it's because the nervous system is an electrical system. And it literally essentially sends this vibratory like electricity to ignite every one of your cells. And it happens, I believe, when you hear, say, or feel something that resonates with your soul, because my philosophy and belief is that we know so little about the nervous system. It's the most like intricate, insane like thing that essentially runs us that we know so little about. And I believe it's the bridge between whatever you want to say, source, God, love, like the thing that we all stem from, right, comes through the heart in this nervous system and it creates our reality. So it's the bridge between this physical three-dimensional world we live in, in that world. And so once you hear something that's connected to source, God, and love, your nervous system creates frisson and excites like it is right now again. So yeah, little fun fact. I love that. That's amazing. Do you do workshops? I do not do workshops. You no. should totally do workshops. <laughs> you would, you would really like, you would blow it out. It'd be amazing if you did workshops. Thank you for that. Do you do coaching one-on-one? Right now it's coaching one-on-one. And it's funny because literally my my best friend, Allie was over yesterday and and we had another friend over and we were talking. She was like, you need to start just doing like executive team coaching, like have a whole, like the team of, yeah, just like a workshop. We'll see what happens. I don't know. Let me know. Sign me up. (laughs) Be amazing. It'd be amazing. Seriously. Okay. Let's talk about your sound product line. Where can people purchase? Yeah, right now we're in this, it's an interesting transition phase. So we're, we're, we're close to finalizing a deal with, with a majority acquirer, but in the interim, just because of the economy and the collapse of it, we are basically out of product for the first time in nine years, which is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy to think it's been a challenging, hence my shoulder and everything. That's a whole nother, but, but it looks like we're going to make it out the other end, which I'm grateful for. And so really the best thing you could do now is, you know, follow us, drink dot sound, and we should be back. You know, I think we just sold out on Amazon too. So we're hoping in the next couple of months we're, we're, we're back up and running. So it's on, it is on Amazon. Yeah, but it may, but it may be sold out at this. Okay. Point. So it might be sold out if you go in to try to purchase it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I did put the link for drink sound on Amazon on my, one of my pages. So yes, but again, like you said, go to www.drinksound.com. Where did the name sound come from? I'm curious. Mm. Sound as an adjective, sound body, sound mind, sound ingredients, sound mission, really a descriptor for not only what we put in our product, but how we wanted to go about business. Love it. Love it. Okay. My last three most important questions, and then I'll let you go to Bali and go be amazing. And B, I love it. I'm so excited. If you had a saying or a quote that best describes your philosophy or on business, health and or life, what would it be? Hmm. Yeah, I thought about this and it's, it's a recent one that's come up actually since my injury that I've been using that I think I want to run with. And it's a question, what beats your heart? And I'm curious, what, how, how would you answer that question? What beats my heart? Yeah. Things that beats my heart really is my unconditional love for my family. That mm-hmm. really is what moves me every day. That's it. I mean, without that, without my core, my people, the fact that they know me at the deepest level and they love me for who I am. I feel like it's really at the heart of it's God for me. I'm very spiritual. Mm -hmm. So God gave me this and I'm blessed with this. And this is what gives me life. So that would be my answer. I love that answer. And I love that you said God and unconditional love and do you yeah. believe it's the same thing that beats my heart? I would think so. <laughs> the same thing, yeah. The same yeah. thing that beats everyone's heart. Some people say like the brain beats. I know the heart is yeah. what creates all of this. Right. And some people call it God, love, Allah, universe source. It's yeah. all the same because we all come from the same thing. We are all one and we are now believe that we're like disconnected, but we are all interconnected through this thing. And so I say that because it just, it brings me back. And anytime I ever feel stressed or anything like, or I, I, there's a challenging decision to be made. Like I just, I go back into my heart because when you, when you realize that this is the matrix and we all stem from the same thing, it just allows, it allows you to actually remember like what your purpose, what your passion is, what's important and and really make a decision from a place of love and not from a place of fear, which unfortunately so many people in our culture, it's, it's, it's a fear driven culture, you know, and a scarcity mindset. So it's something that I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to run with what beats your heart. And again, it ties that like bridge to the nervous system because the thing that beats our heart, which controls our nervous system is source god whatever you want to call it and that's what creates this reality that we live in because it comes through the nervous system and then our five senses that create this perceived reality thousand percent thank you i appreciate that my last two questions what legacy do you hope to leave Hmm. this you know i i have a i have a quick little line I worked on with my coach that, that I think is the answer to this quick, simple. It's, you know, my purpose is to increase consciousness by being love. And so that's kind of what I tie everything back to. And I would love to leave that legacy of supporting, you know, our overall collective consciousness by just being love, which is what we all are. Yes. I love that. Thank you. Where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Hmm. This is an interesting one because 
this is something my mind, you know, the planning like OCD very much loves. And I'm trying to step into this chapter of not doing that. And so my answer would be, you know, with a family on an island somewhere, just enjoying life. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's, I'd hope for most people, like, you know, that's kind of their end game is to be around their loved ones and being somewhere that feels home. So, you know, I, I love that. So I, I, I will, I pray and hope that that's, I, that's where I'll see you on Instagram. You're like showing pictures of all your kids, you're running and frolicking on the beach. So thank you so much. I really have enjoyed talking to you. You are just I'm very honored and blessed to have had an opportunity to interview you and you are so knowledgeable. And I do hope that you push a workshop out there so I can attend it. (laughs) So much for the time, for the platform. Um, Really, really has been an honor. Thank you. All right, you guys, if you want to connect with Salim, you need to go to Instagram and connect with him at that HRV guy. Is there another spot that they connect can connect with you at? That would be Instagram's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I have TikTok and all the other ones, like the same content the agency put blast on all Facebook, right. Twitter, but that's the main one I would say. Okay. And if you want to check out his product line, go to www.drinksound.com. Thank you so much. And thank you for tuning in. I hope you will hit the subscribe button and listen to our next podcast chat. Take care. Thank you. A special thank you to our guest expert, Salim Najjar of drinksound.com. If you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified of future episodes. You can find all the links in the description of this episode. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.